Hi, this is Tamsin Gringer. And this is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamsin and Dan Read the Paper, even later than usual. Well, it's, first of all, it's Happy 2023. I haven't said that. No, I haven't written it either. Yeah, Happy New Year. Well, you, you don't write... I was write... so proud of myself I was doing 2022 accurately. Well, you... <laughs> <laughs> and now I have to move on. That's a sad to comment. 2023. That's a, a sad, sad comment. comment. Well, if you wrote as many checks as I did, you, you you pick it up quickly. But in any event, it's 2023. Right. We had a good New Year. Yes, we had an excellent holiday with our, a fair bit New of family. Year's Eve was uh, babysitting, really. Yeah, but that's okay. Hasi's very entertaining. Very entertaining, and uh, you know, it's not like you want to stay up till midnight after you spend uh, hours and hours and hours with Hasi. You need your rest. But uh, he's a cutie pie, so. Uh, that was good. Uh, and, uh, you know, we've been out. We've been here with uh, Sadie in particular, going out on the town over the last week or so. Uh, the two big events, right? First, Funny Girl. We went to the theater. Went to the Broadway theater. Right. Uh, what was that? The 26th. We always make that. Is, is it a mistake? Do we have to say it's a mistake? The day after Christmas... When people are still sort of in a holiday mode, and that's, you know, sort of a holiday week, uh, the city seems jammed. I know. If you go if you go outside out here in the country. There's no one on here. On Christmas or the day after Christmas. No one's here. You, you don't see anything. No, people okay. are home. They're huddled. They're with their families. You go into New York, it's... Uh, busy. It's busy. It's well, in certain areas. Yeah. So, and Times Square is definitely one of them. Yeah, in the whole theater area. Uh, and, uh, you know, we had an adventure which is probably not worth recounting, but just to to get to the restaurant where we ate before the theater, uh, then to get to the theater on time, to try to walk along 6th Avenue or 7th Avenue to walk the 10 blocks to get up to 52nd Street was harrowing. It's, it's, it's just, it, you know... <laughs> It's shoulder-to-shoulder people. You can't make any progress. And uh, it's not so much complaining as amazement on my part. Yeah. Uh, that on December 26th, that uh, every inch was occupied by humankind. It was bizarre. Well, yeah. I mean, it's funny. December 11th or 12th, we went into New York with Dixon. Yeah. And it was flawless. Yeah. I mean, flawless <laughs> in the fact that there was, was no, no one there. Problems. No, timing and, you know, was not an issue. And, and, and I, then, uh, you know, we go in uh, December 26th, and it was... Crazy. Well, if we went tonight, it would be a ghost town. I, you know, but, but, and yet every year we manage to go to the theater just around Christmas time, around New Year's, and we're amazed because we, it takes a whole year, yeah. but we're, we forget. And yeah. so it's we're just not bizarre. catching on. We're not catching yeah, on. Yes. But other than that, we did see Funny Girl. We had gone to Funny Girl because uh, Leah Michelle is in it now. Right, right. And she got rave reviews. Right. Uh, she's, uh, you know, and I was smart too because I knew she would get rave reviews, so I bought the tickets like a week before no, it opened. I bought with her. the tickets. Yeah. Well, but I told you to buy the tickets. How's oh, that? Oh, really? Yeah, <laughs> I was on the ball, and we you wouldn't have gotten tickets otherwise. And it was sold out, and it's been sold out since she got well, rave it's never reviews. Sold out. Sure these it is. Days. Sure it's it always resale, Daniel. Yeah, but that's still sold out. In your mind, because you're not willing to pay more than sixty nine fifty for any Every ticket. seat in that theater was filled, okay? And it was a little bit of a fanboy, fangirl crowd. A little bit. There was a lot of shrieking, more than we're used to. Uh, certainly when she was on the stage singing the big songs. There were a lot of Leah Michelle fans, uh, which is all to the good, right? Uh, mm. But uh, Funny Girl is a, is a funny show. At the end of the day. Now, I will say this, and I've said this before. Funny Girl 
was a show that everybody talked about when I was growing up, uh, or as much as anything. I mean, in a Jewish community, and it's about a Jewish star, and there weren't that many shows about Jewish personalities then. Uh, a year before Fiddler on the Roof, 1964 or so. And it was, you know, Barbara Streisand. It was really the Barbara Streisand show. And she became a megastar uh, off her performance in that. And it might as well have been called The uh, Funny Girl, The Story of Barbara Streisand. It was just so wrapped up with her personality. So big shoes to fill. Big shoes to fill. Um, but it, it's funny. She And Leah Michelle, I thought, was very good. I think you'd agree with me that she was very good. She was fine. Yeah. But uh, what Barbara Streisand's personality and coming of age and emergence, if you will, uh, overshadowed to some degree was that the show is not so great, right? <laughs> yeah, the show is not uh, great. Well, it's not. Yeah, it's flabby. It's got too much stuff in it. And it has some great songs. It has a couple of oh, nice songs. I'm a little more of an enthusiast than you are. Yeah. I mean, I didn't grow up, you know, in Babs land. Yes, you know, well, I did. I, I I did see the movie, and you know everybody liked the movie. Yeah, but I, I thought the movie was lame. But yeah, <laughs> well, but you liked Omar Sharif. Let's face yeah, it. Yeah, who doesn't? <laughs> Ew, there there are Broadway songs written about him. Okay. <laughs> well, that's true. You have me there. Um. So yeah, but uh, Funny Girl as a musical, I never cared about. Yeah. Uh, at all. And I gotta say, I still don't. You know, but you know what's shocking about this what? is that, and, and I'm reminded that Harvey Firestein is is was hired to revise the book to improve the musical's plot and structure. What could he have? You know, what could he have done? He couldn't have. He made this better. I mean, he couldn't have made it better if it was if he made it better. It must how, have really been bad. Exactly. I mean, it was nominated for best <laughs> for best musical in 1964. It couldn't have been. He must have made it worse. I can't imagine. That he could have been a, made a positive contribution. Well, it's possible that he had to um, clean up some stuff. Yeah, but that's not enough to get a credit. He's he's in the playbill as he rewrote it. Um, here's here's the basic structure without the dwelling on it. And wait a minute, you're going to tell the story? No, okay. I'm just saying that it has the structure of a lot of musicals. When you have someone who's it's about a huge talent, often a Broadway show talent. It's all about they're great, they're great, they're great, they're great, they're great but you can't have a show like that. It needs something in the way of conflict. You need something to be a roadblock or a hurdle and what always, what it's often the case is life happens. Personal mm-hmm. life happens. Mm-hmm. There is uh, setbacks or whatever. People get old. Parents die. Siblings die. Children die. And, and that's the way those stories are. And the closest analog to me is actually uh, Yankee Doodle Dandy. Yankee Doodle Dandy, which is the George M. Cohan story, as you know, yeah, with, with James Cagney. It's the same structure. He comes in, he's a child star, he's a sensation from nowhere, success, okay. success, success. Life happens, life happens, life happens. And then something has to happen at the end to snap him out of it. Well, the problem with that structure is that um, twofold. One is it's, you know, life happens is kind of boring. You know, right. and as it is in this, the Nick Arnstein stuff, her boyfriend, the, the problems that she has with her boyfriend. Well, that's just sort of classic, isn't it? It's classic. Falling in love with the wrong guy. Right. But but you've got to watch that for 40 minutes in the show and it's not doesn't go anywhere. But the other thing to snap out of it, they had one trick going on in Yankee Doodle Danny, the Don't Even Funny Girl. What snaps George M. Cohen out of it, or Jamie Jimmy Cagney playing Cohen, is he, of course, had written his greatest classic was Over There, uh, which was a theme song. Or the Yankee Doughboys going in World War One, and then time goes on, and he gets older, and he's sort of forgotten, and he's no longer has shows. 
And the, the final scene in Yankee Doodle Dandy is he's summoned to see Franklin Roosevelt, who gives him some kind of Medal of Honor in 1940 and says he still matters. Mm-hmm. And he, this is the gray-haired Jimmy Cagney. And he walks out in the Washington streets in the last minutes of the movie. And of course, uh, what's going on? They're getting ready to march over the battle into Europe again. It's mm-hmm. 1940. Mm-hmm. And he falls into line and a bunch of people demonstrating on the streets marching. And what are they singing over there? They're singing his song. Okay. And at one point, and they say to him, literally say to him, hey, old timer, you know the words of this? You should sing along. And he says, <laughs> I think I do. Uh-huh. And he sings. So all it took for George M. Cohen to snap him out of it was a world war. That's what it took to make that go on an upbeat note. And they didn't have that in Funny Girl. So it kind of drifts for the last 40 minutes or an hour. So in any event, mixed reviews. Yeah, so, I mean, it's just weird because from the get-go, you know this guy is bad news. Yeah. And so, you know, you just, uh, well, so how I, she cannot figure that I'm out. I'm just going to say, you know it was bad news? Omar Sharif, that's what I want to say. <laughs> Uh, this place played by probably worth it. <laughs> That's what they needed. They needed it. But, but I do, I do have to say, you know, it it was fine production. She's uh, Lee Michelle's a, a real talent. But um, I have to say that a much um, better theater experience was had by me. Yeah. At the little production of A Man of No Importance. Yeah, Down okay. in classic stage. Right, yeah, okay. And I agree. And I enjoyed the music more. It's not like you come home humming any tunes right. or anything like that. But uh, songs and scenes, you know, brought me to tears yeah. in a way that I was not moved at all uh, it was by much more, anything yeah. that happened was, in Funny Girl. Right. Um, so, uh, there you go. that's that. Okay, I agree with you. Uh, and then we went to see... Well, and then we went. We Just a few days ago, we went well, to see... Well, then we had New Year's. Yeah. Okay. And we... Uh, and then, uh, you know... We went to a we, hockey game. Yeah, so... Uh, and that was fun. We saw... New Year's Day. Yeah. New Year's Day. And... Uh, we trucked into Newark. Yeah, the Rock. The yeah. Prudential Center. Uh, and that was fun. We drove it, into Newark and uh, saw a hockey game. It was fun. It was the uh, cap- Capitals. The um, Devils... <laughs> Against uh, the, the hurricane, hurricanes the Carolina hurricane. of North Carolina, and uh, so that was fun because Sadie is a fan of uh, the Hurricanes. The and she's also somewhat loyal to the Devils because she's a Jersey. Well, girl. it was a, it was a great game. It was and a great game, and it was back and forth, back and forth, went into overtime. And I I hadn't really kept up. I don't watch a lot of hockey, honestly, until the playoffs. And uh, regular season hockey, what they do is they play a five minute overtime, three on three. Yeah. It's normally five on five, but three on three is a lot of open ice. And it's a very interesting style of hockey to watch for a few minutes. And then that uh, ended in a tie, so went to shootout. Shootout, which is also interesting. Yeah. So we got our money's worth. Right. Uh, the, so it was a good adventure. Yes. A very good adventure. So now this week we have coming up uh, a big birthday. It's your birthday. Yeah. Dan Abbeyhoff's birthday. Yes. Uh, so we have to think of some... Excitement to be had there. Uh, I'll give you some suggestions later. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So anyway, so you had uh, an article about archaeology of all things. Speaking of my birthday, archaeology. Yeah, this one's for you. <laughs> what? 
<laughs> so I, this caught my eye in the science section, actually. Yeah. About a week or two ago. And uh, the headline was, A Superior Clock for Biblical Times. So I, <laughs> I can see you're on the edge of your seat. Yeah, right. Already. Yeah. Um, and, and what it's talking about is... Um, You've heard of radiocarbon dating. Sure, of course. Right? Okay, I'm totally so onto it. Yeah. Are you, are you yes, just I'm totally funny? No, okay. I, I know so what we, it is. Because we've talked about that before. It's, it's a, it's a um, dating strategy, I guess, that uh, is based on the idea that all living things have carbon-14 right. in them. Is it's that, in plants it, through photosynthesis. And a certain half-life or something like that. And yeah. the... Uh, when animals eat it, they also have carbon fourteen. Right. So, and when any of, when plants or animals die, yeah, okay, the uh, carbon fourteen begins to decay, yeah. and it decays at a particular rate. Right. So, if you can figure out how much uh, carbon fourteen is existing in something dead, you can figure out when it lived. Right. right? How many years ago? So it turns out that's not always reliable or useful. It's shocking. Okay. Yeah. Um, it, from around 800 to 400 BC, because of changes in the percentage of radiocarbon in the atmosphere, the resolution of radiocarbon dating during those years is so limited that archaeologists sell, seldom use it. So in steps another methodology that relies on geomagnetic data. Okay, and uh, this is the way that works. Um, Many materials, including rocks and soils, record the reversals and variations over time in the Earth's invisible geomagnetic field. When ancient ceramics or mud bricks that contain ferromagnetic or certain iron-bearing minerals are heated to sufficiently high temperatures, the magnetic moments of the minerals behave like a compass needle reflecting the orientation and intensity of the field at the time of burning. This new methodology can provide a sort of geo-biblical clock. So you're really using this kind of magnetic uh, methodology, archaeomagnetic data, Hmm. to date things. And one of the things they're trying to date is Tisha (laughs) B'Av. Really? Okay. Yeah. So the destruction of Jerusalem. Yeah. That, uh, you know, it's... uh, at 586 BC, yeah. okay, but various things happened, including exactly what was destroyed was destroyed at at the time simply by the Babylonians, mm-hmm. or did uh, the Edomites step in and destroy other things uh, and destroy other areas subsequently or at the same time? And uh, it turns out that they've been able to figure out a great deal. Well, well you know, not, uh, not everybody's totally sold on right. this methodology, but uh, it's revealed much more about Tish above yeah. and what happens by being able to look at fragments of what was, you know, around during the destruction hmm. and being able to date that. So as a matter of fact, it wasn't one big pile of destruction. It was the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and then the Edomites slip in a few years later. And they're able to tell that by archaeomagnetic data. Well, that's... Uh, I but I know I'd... you are a guy who is always saying, Tisha you know, well, I haven't seen you since Tisha B'Av. That's the expression. And so that's meaning, I guess, that 
That's a long, long time ago. Exactly. And now we're beginning to know exactly how long ago Oh, my God. So now... Thanks to archaeomagnetic Well, that's data. fantastic. Yes, that's the phrase. I haven't seen it since Tisha Buff. All right, honey. You I just... didn't even know Tisha Buff was a real thing. Yeah. Yeah, it is. You know? There's a lot of the Jewish religion that's based on real things. But then, yeah, that's one of them. Well, so... that, that's the beauty of the, you know, the looking at the Bible and trying to, you know, figure out yeah. how reliable certain... Um, descriptions yeah. in the Bible, including, you know, why all this uh, hate for the Edomites? Why, 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 why? Oh, this is why. Yeah. Okay. They swooped in after the Babylonians had started bad things. They swooped in for their own destruction. All right. Well, talk about the destruction. Uh, a lot of articles this week about Southwest Airlines sort of destructing or self-destructing. During the big storm, uh, Southwest Airlines... Um, experienced something of a fiasco and that uh, they had to cancel an inordinate amount of flights. Yeah, the storm just before Christmas. Right. And uh, moving across the United States, just, uh, you know, getting rid of flights as it went. But, you know, uh, most airlines did suffer a certain amount of uh, canceled flights, but Southwest really suffered about three times as many canceled flights as the others. I think even more. Than yeah. That, so the question was, uh, why are they so bad and, and what are we going to do about it? And of course, uh, you know, Congress is ready to step in. Pete Buttigieg, the Department of Transportation, is going to uh, have hearings. Uh, like That's going to solve anything, but fine. And, uh, you know, these are bad guys. Southwest Airlines is a, is a general, you know, let's jump on They're them. They're just evil. They're piling on. <laughs> well, so here there's a very interesting explanation by Paul, Paul Krugman here, who's an um, economic columnist for the Times, which I generally don't agree with. But in any event, he does have the one that he has won the Nobel Prize and I have not yet. So um, and he says uh, he basically writes, he said, uh, how did this happen? Referring to Southwest, he says, to be honest, I'd love to write a scathing, muckraking column, but that doesn't seem to be the story. And what Krugman explains, which is kind of was my instinct too, that's why I tend to credit it, uh, he said, look, they're just based on a different model. And you pointed this out to me before, whereas, uh, you know, most airlines operate from a hub-to-spoke platform where they have certain hubs, let's call it Chicago, let's call it Atlanta, Orlando, whatever it is, and they use those hubs to sort of be an intermediate points from which they direct a lot of their flights, but they always collect at the hubs as opposed so to just point to point. fly out from to the New hubs. York, from the fly hubs. out to L.A., but come back to, to the hub. Chicago. Right, and they say, and the, the here's the interesting history of that, as opposed to Southwest, which is just point to point, okay? They don't right. have hubs. They go point to point. So it turns out, as Krugan explains, it used to be that the uh, the government required that all airlines be point to point. Used to be illegal to have hubs. Oh, and, really? Yeah. And then they finally made it legal, and a lot of these airlines went to uh, the hub system. Southwest did not, but and and they suffered in terms of the cancellations. The reason that they had more cancellations was because they don't use the hub system because they go point to point and it put more of their flights at risk. But as Krugman points out, that's true. The point to point is extremely vulnerable during storms like this. But generally speaking, the point to point system is more efficient and more economical. And as a result, Southwest charges less for airfares. Right. So it's it's a trade-off. Southwest is basically trying trying to attract customers by saying we have cheaper flights. 
and we will get you from point A to point B on a more on a more cheaply, perhaps even more reliably. And they point out in 2022, they won the J.D. Power's rankings for customer satisfaction. It says, but the downside or the risk associated with it is in a situation like this, the big storm, they're going to be more vulnerable. So it's just a trade-off. Mm. It's not a matter of good or bad. Uh, and it's up to the customers to decide which model they want to use, uh, whether whether it's good, whether whether it's bad, you know, whether they're indifferent to what they pay or whether they're sensitive to what they pay. And you have uh, people who are very loyal to Southwest and some who would prefer not to fly them. So that will continue, uh, you know, Pete Buttigieg notwithstanding. So, uh, well, I think, um, but I think some of the distress yeah. was in trying to get help dealing with the results. I'm sure they dealt okay. with it poorly and I'm sure they yeah. I'm it, sure they're apologetic and I'm, I'm sure they'll make amends. I mean it's just like a perfect storm because yeah. you know it's literally uh, and figuratively. Yeah, it's a holiday weekend where you right. need much more help perhaps right. and you can't possibly get it. Well frankly in the best of all possible worlds the airline list says you know something you shouldn't fly with us this, this week. Uh, we're going to have a tough, tough time. You know you make people aware of it. I don't see anything wrong with that. Uh, but in any event, uh, there is a reason why it's set up the way it is. So uh, you had... Uh, well, I have a couple of little things. Um, one is about Père Lachaise, uh, another favorite cemetery, this one in Paris. Yeah. Okay, it dates from 1804. And, um, it, I mean, it's a very interesting place to just walk around. And, yeah. You know, it it's, gets a lot of fans because Jim Morrison... Is buried there, Oscar Wilde, Edith Piaf, mm -hmm. uh, et cetera, and so forth. Um, but, uh, and, and so, you know, and uh, there is that, but it's also just. Uh, <laughs> there is that, yeah. You know, it's architecturally just a fun place to be. We've so, been there. Yes, we've been there. Yeah. I'm just saying, yeah. in case you're thinking of all American uh, 20th century cemeteries, yeah. uh, it's just much more. Fascinating. It's, you know, they have mausoleums. They have all kinds of sculptures. It also seems huge oh, to me. It, yeah, yeah. And it's, yeah, I guess it is pretty huge. Yeah. But, um, not at all like what a lot of Americans growing up would visualize a cemetery to be. Uh, uh. Um, not as much fun as Milan, of course. My very favorite. Uh, don't get started. But, uh, but anyway, full of uh, statuary and uh, um, monuments. Okay, But it's always been neat as a pin. Yeah, it's always been like setting records for herbicides and pesticides. Mm -hmm. You know, keeping growth under control, as if uh, any kind of uh, growth, overgrowth, or you know, uh, animals would be an insult. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, to the you know the memory of those uh, buried there, until. Fairly recently, I guess about 2011, mm -hmm. um, the uh, city's municipal government started encouraging um, the cemeteries in Paris to phase out pesticides out of environmental concerns, mm -hmm. etc. And ever since then, it's become more and more nature-friendly mm -hmm. um, and environmentally, you know, uh, safe or, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, whatever. Um, and um, also animals have begun to return as well, especially, uh, of course, there are a lot of, uh, a lot of stories about animals returning to the cities mm -hmm. uh, during COVID. 
etc. And uh, so now it's becoming kind of a um, tourist draw mm. for people who like, you know, forests, who mm. like nature, who like gardens, mm. okay? which actually, when they started out, um, the purpose-built cemeteries were kind of focused on being beautiful um arboretums etc and uh i you know i remember telling you about uh the great uh laura hill cemetery outside of philadelphia actually at a certain point and it was also founded in the 19th century in about 1839 they actually had to sell tickets they ended up selling tickets for people to be able to get into the cemetery because people liked to get out of the city right. and come up that was yeah, before was there park. were yeah. very many public parks and yeah. they would come up and you was know, that, picnic was on that the an Olmsted thing? I'm trying to remember. Was, no, no. no. Okay. Um, so anyway, so it's just, uh, this is what happened. Some people were complaining about it. Uh, one uh, person remarked, uh, your cemetery looks like Paris-Plage, which are these um, sort of beaches set up along the Seine in the summer. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. people are hanging out in the cemetery, you know, uh, how uh, how horrible. But they say they see... You know, foxes frolicking and all kinds of birds. The cemetery used to be really overrun by feral cats mm-hmm. for some reason. And uh, now the feral cats have kind of died out. Mm-hmm. So there are many more birds. And so it's a lovely place to be. Uh, another reason to go to Père Lachaise. Well, okay. it's, uh, you know, it's the environmental theme, I guess, as much as anything. If people are going to do things in line with environmental concerns. And They're going to use fewer things. pesticides. And it's like the article about the lawns last week. You know, if, yeah. if that's where we're heading, less manicure, less pesticides, more natural growth. That... Well, having these green areas within the city yeah. has all kinds of actual benefits. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the idea that it, it was somewhat restrained from being as green as it could be mm-hmm. uh, was a negative. Mm-hmm. So now right. we're back. Now we're back. I, as long as you don't, you know, let, as long as you can still see the monuments because they are very. Oh, I'm cool. sure. I'm uh, sure they'll. Uh, uh, then I have another thing. You remember a couple weeks ago we were talking about um, the dome of mm. Saint John the Divine. Yeah. And of course, in that discussion, they mentioned that there wasn't supposed to be a dome. Yeah. Okay. The brickwork that's there by the Gustavinos is uh, was supposed to be temporary because there was going to be this enormous spire mm-hmm. on top that was going to go up, right. you know, just uh, you know, four hundred and fifty feet high. It was going to be, you know, a higher thing than the Statue of Liberty. Right. Okay, so when the Saint John was built, and that was scrapped because. It turns out that um, the site that was chosen for this cathedral can't support anything that heavy. The, the guesstimate for the weight of a, such a spire would be 136 million pounds. Hmm. And it turns out that even though it's uh, the location was chosen um, in the 19th century, um, 1880s, for its... High location. It's on, you know, Morningside Heights. There's kind of a cliff. Okay. Yeah. There's this cliff. So it was this great high spot. Yeah. The only problem is that in the ground, yeah. it's all decomposing earth and 
um, rivers, literal like creeks and rivers of water. There's nothing to support the weight. Mm -hmm. When they first started digging for the foundation, um, they ended up with a at a certain point with a 40 foot pit, and it completely filled up with water. Mm. And so, you know, it's hard to visualize, but it's on kind of this, uh, there's a, they think there's kind of an underground stream that went from one corner on 113th Street down across, down to the Cathedral Parkway uh, on the other end. Uh, And um, so that's a problem. And it's been a problem. And so there's a whole story in the New York Times about, uh, you know, this uh, writer going down into the crypt uh, and seeing that, you know, it's somewhat flooded. Mm-hmm. And the question is, why? Where is the water coming from? And, had, you know, did they know about it? Yes, they've always known about it. There were various results um, and, you know, efforts to make it uh, still useful mm-hmm. as the location because they were determined. This is an Episcopal uh, cathedral is determined for it to be there mm-hmm. and be this amazing symbol. Even J. Pierpont Morgan contributed like $500,000 to trying to find a way to solve this problem. And, and the idea was basically pour in an enormous amount of concrete to hold everything up. Mm-hmm. But still the water came through. Mm-hmm. There's still water. They have all these sump pumps. The one thing that helped was uh, a few years ago, in 2014, there was a new housing complex that was built, Mm -hmm. 15 stories, just on the north side of all of this. Mm -hmm. And they think that the foundations of that actually diverted water around Mm -hmm. the cathedral, so they have less of a problem there. But it's a huge problem. It's ongoing. There's still water seeping from various places. But, uh, it, you know, it's just crazy. People knew, at a certain point, people did know it was going to be a terrible location for a big Yeah, that's development. what I was thinking. And they, they still were determined to make it happen. Right. Well, I know you attribute that so to the So there will being... never be the spire. No. And, and if you look at, I mean, you, you look at pictures of St. John the Divine, it Looks terribly unfinished. I thought it was just—I thought it was just an economic thing, a financial thing. Well, everything—everything at the end of the day is an economic thing. No, they put a lot of money into trying to get this baby up, and it, it ain't happening. Well, so there's an article in the op-ed section of all places about this woman's experience. Wait with, a minute, can I just say what that last piece dedicated to my father, who had a business doing test borings, yeah. where you test. The ground before you build anything and get the approvals. All right. Well, if we can do tissue. But that was post 19th century. That was 20th century. We can dedicate things to your father. The um, any event. So there's there's a woman who takes her dog for a walk, and uh, she takes and brings the dog home, and uh, he starts frantically turning in circles after a few hours, and. He's thrashing about in a way they can't understand. Uh, uh, And they have to rush him to the veterinarian. Um, And they're awfully concerned. He's twitching violently. He's plainly terrified about something. And the veterinarian uh, examines the dog and gives them the diagnosis. uh, Acute cannabis intoxication from something, likely the butt of a joint, he had gobbled up on the street. 
Uh, and That's as, incredible. As this woman writes... Where does this woman live? She doesn't say exactly where she lives. Uh, well, she says the Upper West Side. She doesn't say what block. All right. Okay? <laughs> and, uh, but that covers a lot of territory. But she says, look, in the past two months where she lives, two cannabis dispensaries have opened on her block. And that's in addition to the mobile store that opened last year. So now, because of legalization, a lot of people are buying and smoking marijuana in the few blocks in the region where she lives. And as she uh, reasons it out, probably correctly, you know, when they're finished with their marijuana cigarette, they throw the stub of it on the ground, as people often did with cigarettes. But now they're doing it with marijuana cigarettes. And uh, the dog... Just, you know, has his mouth on everything along the sidewalk when they take the dog for a walk, as dogs do, apparently. And, uh, you know, eats the, it's a problem. Eats the joint. It's and, a problem. Yeah. And she says, yeah, it's a huge problem because uh, it's showing up in a lot of dogs. So much so that, and this is the positive side, that uh, veterinarians are now getting very good at diagnosing this uh-huh. because they have expected. They see the dog and say, I know what that is. Right? So and, what's the solution? The solution for her, uh, well, there are two possible solutions. One, as she says, people could, you know, as she puts it, maybe people could please pick up their damn roaches off the sidewalk and throw them in the garbage can. That's one solution. She's not buying into that as likely. So instead, she has her dog wearing a muzzle every time he goes out for a walk to prevent him from eating the stuff on the sidewalk. And she says, look, he doesn't like it. It's humiliating for him, she believes. It's uh, inconvenient for me, but it's far preferable to another night in the ICU for him, not to mention the bill from the vet for me. Uh, not a hazard you could see coming, no. but uh, now that she describes it, it's probably pretty widespread. Well, I wonder. I always wondered anyway yeah. why it's okay to throw your cigarette butts on the ground. Yeah, well, I don't think it was ever okay, but now it has uh, implications that it didn't previously have. And uh, I can see that being a big thing. So uh, we'll see. Maybe people end up being up in arms about that. As I said, it was in the op-ed section. It wasn't an obscure article in the Times. Like, this is a thing. So So I have an obituary for Don Christopher, who spread the gospel of garlic in the U.S. And uh, this is a good story about uh, a guy who came from a a farming family out in California, San Jose. And he... uh, Went to college, decided to be a farmer, but he found his father grew plums that yeah. were dried into prunes, right? right? And he found that dull. Imagine so he and that. his brother yeah. uh, bought some land and yeah. started, uh, you know, growing some lima beans, some sugar beets, and gar and some garlic. And uh, somehow he ended up getting really into the garlic. All right, so. Yeah. Um, Christopher Farms uh, grows an enormous amount of the world of the country's uh, garlic. And they really, so, but one of the things he did was, you know, early on, he said, um, you know, there wasn't much American uh, sort of interest in garlic in the 20th century. It was perceived as something that poor people ate. Yeah. I don't, I don't even think it was that. It, for me growing up, it sounded like it was perceived as something that immigrants Eight. Yeah, okay. yeah, you've told me so, this before. Yeah. So, yeah. And uh, that uh, seemed, for some people, I guess, like a negative well, thing. Well, I think Italian right? food was, was a little bit that way. During Italian food was a little yeah, bit that, that way for a while. Immigrant food. Yeah. 
wait a minute, it's delicious food. <laughs> what is this immigrant stuff? Anyway, um, so, but anyway, he and uh, some uh, friends yeah. in the 70s, I guess the late 70s, uh, produced the, founded the first Fresh Garlic Producers Association and the Gilroy Garlic Festival. So the Gilroy is where uh, his farms were. It's uh, a bit south of San Francisco. Mm. The first garlic festival they had, they thought maybe a few people would show up. 15,000 people showed up. Wow. Okay. And uh, within a few years, it was attracting more than 100,000. Wow. Okay. So the love of the desire for garlic, I guess, was always there. And he was tapping into it. Um so he had a tremendous business going, and he branched out into all kinds of garlic, you know, um, different types of packaging, peeled, pickled, pesto, chopped, crushed, etc. But he got huge competition uh, from uh, abroad sure. at a certain point, uh, including uh, China. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so then he kind of um, actually ends up um, using some of the Chinese garlic mm-hmm. himself for some of these uh, preparations mm-hmm. and promoting the artisanal uh, American garlic mm-hmm. for a certain market. And actually, there there were some issues. There were yeah. Some, no, I saw that. Yeah. yeah. Um, at a certain point, uh, but uh, anyway, um, it's uh, you know Don Christopher we have to thank for helping to make uh, garlic. Yeah, Such you know, a I have staple a, in America. I will say I don't have a strong recollection of you do about the about some negative as negative feelings about garlic, but it certainly wasn't nearly as popular when I was oh, growing yeah, up as it is now. People always say, "Oh, garlic breath," and yeah, uh, right. you know, and it was considered yeah, harsh. Was it wasn't was, considered like just harsh and kind of rough? As a you know, to yeah, eat. There were negative connotations, I think. But then people said, "Wait a minute, it's delicious," and. You know, well, you've heard all the claims very about healthy health. for you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I don't even know if that's true either, but I I, think it I is. swear by it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> even I though mean, you don't know it's true. I mean, we're that all sounds very like comfortable you. eating garlic now. I don't think uh, yeah. I don't think people go so crazy about worrying about having garlic on their breath no. as they did in the late 1950s. I think we're used to it. I'm glad. Yes. So thank you, Mr. Yeah. Christopher. All right. And you had one also really questionable article, and then we can move well, on. Well, you know, it's been a long time between articles about bird sex. Yeah. And somehow they've completely disappeared from the New York Times. The New York Times used to have one about every other week, mm, it yes, seems to right. me. So this, but finally, um, I have, at least I have snake sex mm. to talk about. Now, yeah. snakes are not my best thing. Yeah. I mean, I've always dealt with snakes. We have snakes in the yard here. We have, yeah. And, uh, you know, I was a camp counselor you know, I had to, I was a nature and cam crafts counselor. So I had to put on a good front. That's hard and, to believe. And, uh, no, no. you know, teach people, you know, to appreciate snakes. I'm happy for snakes. I like, you know, natural diversity. Okay. Right. I like that idea that right. there are different kinds of animals, but it just doesn't freak you out that they don't have legs. Yeah. I'm not a big snake guy. That, that, that's a real problem. Right. And how do they swim? Yeah. How do they swim? I kind of stop thinking about it after a certain point, but yeah. Okay. I know you you hate it when you you dive in and you see some snakes, but um, yeah. who doesn't? But uh, anyway, snake sex turns out. Okay, you have probably seen a snake's forked tongue, but that's not the only. That's not the slithering animal's only forked body part. 
male snakes sport forked genitals called hemipenis. That, or I don't know if it's hemipenis, penis, penis, I don't know how to pronounce it, that look a, a bit like pink cactuses. Yeah. Okay. This is not even the interesting part of the article. Well, it's clear to me okay. that's not the interesting part. It's, 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 no argument there. Uh, I think that's a little bit interesting. Well, let's not, forked penis. Do we really have to dwell okay. on this? I mean, uh, but what's anyway, the punchline turns there? out, yeah, one. not only do the males have it, but the females, yeah. okay, in the sub suborder Serpentes yeah. have a bifurcated clitoris or hemiclitoris yeah. uh, as well. Okay. okay? Um, which is kind of uh, very interesting. Yeah. It's interesting for a couple of different points. Okay. One is it was just discovered. Yeah. There have been scientists for a long time. There have been snakes for a long time. Yeah. And they knew the, they knew about the uh, forked penis. Yeah. But the clitoris, no. Yeah. And why is that? Why? Because, you know, um, men are never very interested in the yeah. female anatomy, apparently. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Um, so it took a female um, scientist, Megan Falwell. Yeah down in Australia at the University of Adelaide yeah. to notice um, that these snakes had this bifurcated right. is, is clitoris. There, what's the second reason it's interesting? It's, um, it may tell us something about the sex practices yeah. of the snake. Ah, good. Okay? We'll look forward because to that. Yeah. Darwin had always, uh, Darwin had described um, the female snakes as coy and passive participants yeah. in sexual selection. Okay, so it's a question of whether it's a seductive or coercive situation, and if the snakes, it's clear that the clitoris must have been of some function. Okay, yeah. it must have been functional. In that case, there's the idea that the male snakes were perhaps seducing the mm. female snakes, not just attacking them. Okay. Uh, all right. We look forward to that. And But the what? only reason we're finding this out is, is because some female scientists took an interest. Yeah. You have a more diversity yeah. uh, in yes. the people you studying sigh, these you things. You sigh of relief. You, yeah. you, yes. you see what you, you learn. You discover things. That you want to discover sometimes. All right. Or something you don't really care about. But uh, yes, got it. The snakes care about oh, it. Oh, the snakes do. I, I this understand. is kind of interesting. Okay. Um, I mean, you know, when you think about how, how do snakes swim, how do the snakes swim? Listen, I, I, it's not like I'm chauvinist about it. I wasn't, I wasn't interested in the male sexual thing either. I mean, sex if you're a snake? I okay. So, in any event, finally, last story, nothing to do with snakes. Uh, the, the article is or sex of, problem. No, it's sort of semi-serious. Well, very serious. I mean, guy wrote an article uh, a few uh, weeks ago. Full name Lev Golinkin again uh, on the op-ed page of the Times, saying, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about uh, American founders with questionable history. Uh, you know, engaging in slaveholding and the like, uh, and all that. Uh, you know, possibly merited, probably merited, but. Uh, it seems odd. That kind of feels like ancient history, uh, dealing with American founders who otherwise are sort of key to the uh, development of the nation. Uh, well, by contrast, there seems very little attention paid to the fact that there's been a lot of celebration 
of Nazi figures in the United States. And I said, what the heck is he talking about? And what he was talking about in particular was Werner von Braun. Werner von Braun and some other uh, Nazi Germany scientists who uh, came to the U.S. after the war and became celebrated figures in the U.S. uh, NASA program. Now, I was highly aware of Werner von Braun. He was a a very prominent name in the the space program in the early 60s. Um, Probably as big a name, the most recognizable name in the U.S. space program in the early 60s. And, uh, but I was totally unaware, I mean, I was a kid, right, of the fact that there was any connection between him and Nazi Germany. I mean, obviously it's a German name. Well, it turns out that von Braun uh, was a member of the Nazi party was in particular an officer in the Nazi SS and participated in slave labor and related brutality, according to the article, according to some of the letters I'm looking at here. Apparently that is not mm-hmm. much contested. Uh, I guess he came to the U.S. There was a competition between the U.S. and the Soviet Union following the World War II for scientists who might be important in the development of, of the space program, frankly. We were competing with the well, Soviet Union was, and Sputnik. Whatever general sense that you don't want... The enemies, even though they were past enemies, yeah. to have the smart guys on their side. Well, you don't want the Soviet Union to, do, right. to scoop up the Nazi German right. scientists. Uh, and uh, the, the particulars in the article were that, that they were all, many of them were settled in Huntsville, Alabama, and worked at the University of Alabama. And they were citing a number of, Lincoln was citing a number of awards that are given to this day with the name Werner von Braun on it from the University of Alabama, from Harvard University. Uh, they're giving these awards today. And they're celebrating this guy, and they're overlooking his Nazi past. And I'm saying to myself, that is a little weird. But also, how did I not have any idea? I mean, Werner von Braun was a, very much embraced, in particular by Disney, because Disney was coming out with these uh, space exhibits as part of Disneyland, Disney mm-hmm. World. Uh, and they even had a character called Ludwig von Drake, who's loosely based on Werner von, von Braun, who was a very funny character who came up with these record albums that I've mentioned him before. Right, yeah. I was a big fan of this with his German accent and, uh, you know, this cuddly character. Yeah. And no idea, no idea this was the case. So I'm still scratching my head about this. And I'm saying, well, I guess people just weren't aware of this person's past. And they have a letter that says, no, people were aware. And here's the proof of it. And this is very interesting proof. They cite a lyric from a Tom Lehrer song in the early 60s. And we, you and I are both fans of Tom Lehrer who wrote yeah. these satirical songs at uh, a professor at Harvard University, of all things. And I remember this lyric, and I didn't know what it meant when I was eight years old. And the lyric was, uh, was this. Don't say that he's hypocritical. Say rather that he's apolitical. Once the rockets are up, who cares where they come down? That's not my department says Werner von Braun. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. So it was no secret. Uh, so that's just totally weird. I mean, I don't know what to say about that. Um, I will say this, though. I can. I, it's always great when you can connect the last story with the first story. And I can. Yeah. Uh, because because uh, the voice of Ludwig von Drake was Paul Fries. Paul Fries was also the voice of various characters in Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol. Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol was written by Jules Stein and Bob Merrill. And Jules Stein and Bob Merrill wrote Funny Girl. So there you go. 
I've tied it all up. All right. You're Once welcome. Again, I've done it again. I'm glad uh, to have you here. Yes, thanks very That's much. That's why it's Tamsin and Dan. <laughs> That's why I read the paper. I'm in the titles. My to father get those insights. That's why my father said to me, "At least you got second billing." So uh, that's something. <laughs> All right. So until next week, this is Dan Abuha and Tamsin Granger with Tamsin and Dan read the paper. And See we'll, you next week. Happy New Year. Yes, Happy New Year. <laughs>